Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we kick off the holiday season by discussing Roderick Thorpe's 1979 thriller novel, Nothing Lasts Forever. Geronimo, motherfucker. <laughs> had to uh, earn that explicit tag back yeah we're right back into some r-rated material <laughs> uh so happy december coming up here pretty soon and happy holidays to everybody uh this is going to be our holiday special if you want to call it that yeah it's it's uh i mean the diehard movie is that this book is based on is kind of a holiday tradition for a lot of people it is for me for sure um, one of my favorite movies in general, probably at least, you know, high on the list and definitely like a, a, a Christmas tradition for me is to watch this movie. I feel like I do it every year. We should say if this is your first time listening, uh, this is our podcast. What we do is we read the source material for a movie, usually in multi- multiple parts, depending on the length of the novel. This one lend itself to a two part thing. So this is going to be the first half, which I think is chapters one through nine. And we talk about it. Uh, we summarize it, talk about it. Um, you can either read along with us, but you don't have to. You can also just listen and kind of get a feel for what what is in the book. Maybe decide if it is something you're interested in reading, or if it's something you know you'll never read. You can just you know listen along and kind of get the gist of what happens in the novel. Yeah, and then once we finish the novel, we go we move on to the film adaptation, and we've done that for a few products now. So, and we're planning on trying to hit like almost every genre just a wide expanse of stuff so if if one particular project isn't for you make sure you check back in for something else yeah we've i mean we've hit a pretty good selection here we've got horror and sci-fi multiple sci-fi probably fantasy dramas yeah i mean we're we're doing we're gonna do the whole gambit um yeah so i guess we'll launch right into it what is your relationship to this movie and this novel first off did you know this was this movie was based off a novel no not not until we started you know, talking about doing this project for Ink to Film. And what's funny is like, at, at this point, I'm not going to be surprised by any film that was based on a on a book because there, it like for the past, this one and the one before this that we did, Howl's Moving Castle, it's right there in the credits and I never noticed. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, before I say my relationship to it, I, I forgot. We wanted to mention, um, we are going to be doing a special episode for our 20th episode, which is also going to fall as the last episode of 2017. And if you'd like to stick around to the end, we'll give you the details on that. Should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be something different. So check it out. Yeah, and stick around so you can hear those details because so, we uh, we might need some help from you. Yeah, so the movie for me is, like I said, it's a holiday tradition. I remember seeing it as a kid and I this was like mid-90s for me and I it was just like I don't know teenager Luke loved this movie and loved the action and the fun and everything else. Now this novel is is a little different than that and 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 we'll we'll get into some of those differences. But I'm really looking forward to the movie episode. But yeah, I didn't know this was based off a book until probably a few years ago. I heard about it. I remember when I heard about it, I was like, oh, I'm really curious. Like it, this is honestly one of the novels that probably led to me wanting to do this podcast. Because when I heard this was based off a novel, I became really curious about this novel. Um, and I just never got around to reading it. And like now this, you know, this podcast gave me an excuse to go read it. So it's been kind of fun for that reason. As soon as we talked about starting to, to try to do this project, I saw it everywhere. I saw like lists of people saying like, oh, the most, you know, the most interesting films that were based off of books and it's diehards all over the place. Um, my relationship to the material, basically, I mean, the first I actually wanted to ask you this. The first time I saw the movie it was on TV, so I didn't see the full unadulterated version of the of the film, but I still enjoyed it. I still really liked it. Was it one of those poorly edited, like someone else saying like 
you know, like firecracker or something instead of yeah. motherfucker. Yeah, you know? yeah, brother trucker or something crazy. They always yeah. do something weird. I think I saw a version like that too my first time. So yeah, that was my first time and I didn't even realize until a couple of viewings that it was really like kind of a Christmas movie. Like I knew that there were Christmassy things going on, but then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is like a movie you can watch around Christmas time and have it be legitimately considered a Christmas movie. Well, I mean, I think that that is a fun debate to have. I, you know, I put up a kind of tongue in cheek poll on on Twitter about it, where the only option is essentially yes, it is a Christmas movie. <laughs> but um, you know, it depends on what you mean by that. Yeah, clearly it is a movie set during Christmas. People often watch it during Christmas, like I do, and so I think ipso facto it becomes a Christmas movie for many people. And it's got Christmas music in it, right? <laughs> yeah, the Christmas music, in addition to the fact that in the beginning, it feels like those classic like Christmas movies, like planes, trains, automobiles, those type of like trying to get home for Christmas movies. Yeah. It's got that vibe in the beginning. He's he's going to meet, you know, meet up with his family. Yeah. So it's got like a coming home for I'll be coming home for Christmas vibe to it for sure. Yeah. So I want to tell you a little bit about Roderick Thorpe, the author of this novel, I give the same disclaimer I usually do. I'm by no means a scholar. I've just done some quick research about the guy on the internet. Um, but I will share with you what I've learned. Do you know anything about him? Not much. Um, I mean, I just happened to see a couple of things just looking into stuff for the podcast, but I didn't do any extensive research into him as the person. Okay. Well, I mean, there isn't a lot of, about him available online. So from, yeah, so he was born in 1936 in Bronx, New York. He, as a college graduate, he worked at a detective agency owned by his father, which, you know, makes a lot of sense for how these characters are. He later taught literature and, and creative writing at different schools and universities in New Jersey and California. So he became somewhat known for his 1996 novel, The Detective, which was made into a 1968 film of the same name, which starred Frank Sinatra as Detective Joe Leland, who, by the way, is the main character of Nothing Lasts Forever. Not John McClane, Joe Leland. So don't get confused. Those are essentially one of the same, although there are some differences. So yeah, he, he's better known for his sequel, which came out uh, in 1979, so 11 years later, which was Nothing Lasts Forever. There is a lot of references, to I think, to things that happened in the previous novel uh, in, in like the backstory and stuff, so... Um, you can you can tell. Now, what, one thing that's interesting is the character is a lot older, so we'll we'll get into that. But anyway, that movie you know got adapted into, or that book got adapted into the movie Die Hard, which he became somewhat famous for. Yeah, I mean, other than that, he wrote a couple other novels later in life that got turned into the TV movies, uh, Rainbow Drive and Devlin. I don't know if you've heard of either of those. I think I've heard of Devlin. I haven't seen either of them though. Yeah, I never heard of either either of them. But uh, yeah, he died of a heart attack in 1999 at the age of 62. So pretty young. Wow. What I stumbled upon online was that this is kind of, the story is kind of a sequel to another novel, which is yeah. really interesting. And then, to he, to, and then to see that Frank Sinatra was originally supposed to reprise that role for Die Hard. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, just just thinking that Frank Sinatra could have been, you know, doing all the crazy stuff that john mcclain does in this movie or, or bruce willis it would have been a different movie but it's we should definitely talk about that in the movie episode because i think I, I like i have a lot of thoughts but i think i don't know if now's the time for him uh we'll hold that off for for discussion when we get to the movie i think definitely it seems like he had an okay career i mean he had some novels made into movies which is great but you know he didn't he didn't write a ton of novels um and it's kind of interesting that no one really knows he like i mean not no one but a lot of people don't know that he wrote this novel you know and like i don't know about you but this novel is kind of hard to find kind of hard for me to track down just a, an interesting career that I, I i'm always surprised that he could be he could be lesser known when he's got such a famous adaptation i guess is, is where i'm coming from yeah i don't know i, I don't really understand if, if maybe it was this thing where people like companies started realizing that they could market movies based on the fact that people are already invested because they've read the book or something. But it seems like, like around this time period when these, when what was Die Hard was 89. So it's like, or 88. And it just seems uh, like, you know, I actually don't know. I think it was 88. I was going to look that up when we did the movie episode. <laughs> yeah. So it just seems interesting that they wouldn't market it that way. Maybe it was because it wasn't such a smash hit, but it, it yeah. seems like today, if a movie is based off of a novel, you're going to know it in the marketing. 
All right. Well, I think it's time to get into our summary and discussion. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Yippee ki yay, motherfucker. <laughs> Wait, no, it's Geronimo. He I know. Say I got to stick to the, my diehard roots. Though, That's but right. Yeah. Geronimo, motherfucker. There you go. We're in the we're in the novel. You got to stick to the novel. Um, he does have some interesting banter back and forth. Yeah, you know, he's it's not it's not all like yeah. I don't know. He does have some of that same attitude that John McClane has. I would say definitely. Um, so oh, right as we're getting into it, I wanted to start off by saying, for me, I was picturing current Bruce Willis playing this character because that's okay. about the age the character is. Yeah, he's this older like he. I think he has grandkids. You know, kind of. Uh, he's going to visit his daughter instead of his wife, which is a major difference. And so I'm just picturing this older badass, and I just went right to Bruce Willis. Why not? Just as an older version, I, that worked for me. I don't know. I don't know if you did. You picture anybody for this role? Did you just have like a general? I kind of just I kind of just pictured John McClane, 1980, late 80s Bruce Willis. Uh, so you pictured but, him but, young, even though he's yeah, older. like it, like even though it didn't make sense because he was supposed to be a little older. I was like, maybe I did. You know what? Maybe I did kind of see him as an older John McClane in my mind. Yeah, the scene, the book starts off with him in a taxi and he's on his way to the airport. Um, I think it's in St. Louis. And uh, I thought this was going to be our version of the scene with the limo driver from the movie. But this is actually not that scene. This is a, just an, an additional scene where he's in, in the cab in a cab. And we learn a little bit about uh, Joe Leland. We learn that he's got his gun with him and he's going to take it on the airplane. He's got a special card. That'll let him take it on there. There's okay, so just just to get this out of the way, this novel is clearly written in 1979 by a man who wasn't very racially sensitive, to put it mildly. So there's a little bit of like he's. All, I mean, yeah, he's that guy. He's like this is like the action macho alpha male like character. White guy though. It, white guy yeah. in the in like the 70s. So yeah, definitely racially insensitive, kind of sexist. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely sexist. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, hey, you can say what you can, what you will about the movie may have some of that, too, but it's worse than the novel. I'll go ahead and say that um, yeah. he keeps making these observations about like black people that he thinks are like novel, but they're really not. They're just kind of racist. And he, he's presenting it like he's like this like deep thinker and he's made a lot of thought about like racial relations. But it's clear that he's just like holding on to stereotypes and stuff, you know, right. Anyway, so he ha so the, the you know the, the taxi driver is a black man, and so he has some of this stuff with him. Um, but we won't linger on that. Let's just move past it um, and 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 warn you that if you were going to pick this novel up, there is some of that in there. During their ride to the airport, the taxi driver gets rear-ended by a station wagon. I, oh no, does he rear in the station wagon? Do you remember? There's like a I I don't know whose fault it was really, but it was it was like kind of um I think the guy was trying to push in. Yeah, this guy yeah. was trying to like like cut him off, I think. Yeah, so we have kind of a road ra road rage incident happens where this guy starts like chasing them on their way to the airport because um, Joe really wants to get to the airport. And while it's happening, he like pulls his gun out. Joe does and points it at the other driver to get him to like back off because he's being really aggressive. So this is our first moment where I think this is a good character moment because we see that first off, Joe's not he's actually not a, a, a policeman anymore. He's an ex cop. He's retired now, I guess. And and second off, like he has a temper and he's willing to do things outside the law because, he's, you know, what I mean, whether it's a lack of control or he just doesn't care or he thinks he's above the law a little bit, which I think this is all important for how he behaves later, because we buy that this guy would be this way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So so he points his gun at him and then that scares the guy off and then they get to the airport and he blows through security um, he has his gun, which he just shows like a, a, his card for. And then, yeah, he gets put on this flight and he's told that there is a sky marshal on the flight, uh, by, by like a cop he knew or kind of knew. And the game is going to be him trying to figure out who this sky marshal is. And we find out that he's going to visit his daughter, Miss Gennaro, which is the name of his wife, ex-wife in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but instead we got, uh, Miss, uh, Miss Gennaro, which is his daughter. He calls over there, gets a secretary, and kind of t lets them know that he got busted up in the in the accident. He has like a cut on his forehead. This is also the first uh, wound he takes. First of many. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, then we he gets on the we gets on the flight and we and he starts trying to guess who the sky marshal is. He's not having a lot of luck. And we learned that he has a history with alcoholism. We learned that he is a war veteran from World War II, in which he shot down a bunch of Germans. Um, and that he also worked as a PI. So he kind of, you know, if you get the little, like, punch card of machismo, badass guys, you know, it's like, uh, PI, cop, you know, war veteran, like, uh, alcoholic. It's 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 the classics, right? <laughs> it's it's the big ones. Pure action, yeah, he, like, setup. Yeah. The one thing is that he's a little older. That's actually, it actually makes him kind of interesting in that he's like, he's over the hill. You know what I mean? Like he is all of these things you're used to, but he's grizzled and a little further on. You could say he's too old for this shit. (laughs) A little lethal weapon in there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So chapter two, he's chatting up the stewardess, a woman named Kathy, and they're flirting with each other. This is, I don't know. This always strikes me weird because it's like people who like, think that the waitress is flirting with them like i'm always like they're not flirting with you and i feel the same way about stewardesses it's like they're just doing their job i don't know now of course there are exceptions to that and maybe things were different back then because this is uh you know i think this is supposed to be 1970s late 1970s um regardless he gets the stewardess number um he even kisses her at one point which was really, really wild, really out of nowhere. Like it was, they had talked yeah. and it kind of, because this book is interesting because it like jumps in and out of like his, like his actual plane of what's going on in the present. And then he kind of jumps into his inner monologues and stuff. And so yeah. it's like, it jumps from like inner monologue to him being like, and then he was talking to Kathy and then it's time to get off the plane. He's like, kisses Kathy and gets her number. And you're just like, what? For sure. So that happens and then the plane starts going down to land in in, uh, in la and uh we get some more backstory here and we we hear, we hear about his old partner and money trouble and i don't want to get into a lot of it because i don't think it's necessarily super important to know um just that he had this he has this checkered past where with some possible mistakes were made where a man um killed himself and he got the, you know an innocent man put, uh, put to death i think and he seems to have a good amount of guilt from all this. And then, yeah, he uh, as they're landing in LAX, he realizes he hasn't guessed who the Sky Marshal is. I was kind of surprised that he didn't, like, actually figure it out. I don't know. Like, I kept thinking, like, oh, okay, this is going to be him, like, showing us how, like, his insight into human nature and, and all this stuff. But he actually doesn't ever find out who the Sky Marshal was. It's weird because it's like, you see, I felt like it was because he was talking to Kathy so much, he just got so distracted and didn't care. Yeah, possibly. But it was definitely a moment where I was expecting him to be like, oh, I figured it out. I found him. Because he had said, like, in, I guess somebody in the turn, like, before he got on the plane had said, like, I'm not going to tell you who the Sky Marshal is just so you can figure it out. And he's like, I love puzzles. Like, he's excited to figure it out. Yeah, which, I mean, that is a character moment because we know that he likes the challenge. Um, But yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting that he doesn't succeed. (laughs) So chapter three, a uh, limo driver picks him up. And this is our, this is our limo scene, right? But instead of it being a young kid, like it is in the movie, who listens to like loud rap music or whatever, it's just, it's like this old elderly black man. And, you know, we get some more observations about that. And we get some uh, backstory. Uh, and we learn about how Leland's uh, wet, uh, marriage fell apart and how his daughter had to go to therapy afterwards. And, and his relationship with her is very strained and has just started to get better now. Um, how his alcoholism got really, really bad for a while, but now he's sober. And they arrive at the Klaxon building, which is our, what, Nag- Nagatomi Tower? This, yeah. is our, this is our version Plaza. of that. Yeah, yeah, Nagatomi Plaza, yeah. So we have the Klaxon building, which is a 40-story skyscraper in you know downtown LA. So it's the same, you know, just a different name. The driver drops him off and I think drives off. I don't I don't know. Did did, did, you, did you catch if the driver was sticking around or anything like that? I didn't I didn't I don't remember hearing that. I I thought he just dropped him off. Yeah, I didn't see anything. I the only thing was he he was like thinking about his his family and stuff and he just got dropped off and was walking out. Yeah. You know what? I I'm pretty sure he did. I think I'm pretty sure he left. So, it, there's none of the thing where he's like, yeah, stick around in case I end up having to, you know, take a ride or whatever, which is what happens in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um so that I don't think happens. So at the Klaxon building, he also sees someone like sitting in a Jaguar with like a radio antenna on the car, like scoping the place. And he's got this like really powerful, like observation powers, I guess. And he sees this and he like immediately notes it and he goes inside and the guy who's working security is this ex cop. 
and he immediately tells him about this Jaguar and how the guy's scoping the place. And this old man gets all excited about it and like he's going to call the cops and have him come, you know, see what's going on with this guy. And they have this kind of bonding moment where they make some gross jokes about people at the party. And I don't know. Yeah, this another moment with him kind of bonding with this with this guy. Yeah, and the the guy's like, yeah, if you if you had a gun, we could go go after these guys on our own, kind of thing. Just like g- trying to be all gung ho. Yeah, there's this, there's this, this is kind of where the story starts to pick up for me, because up to this point, there's a lot of character setting up and and kind of learning his backstory, which which it, like makes us kind of sympathize with him for the stuff that he's been through. But this is where it turns into the you know we get the we got to start looking for clues of what's going on. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they trimmed a lot of this for the for the movie right like this is where things really begin and so we're entering chapter four now and he's just now coming into the klaxon building for the first time right so yeah you could argue that maybe there's some uh, fat at the beginning of this this book that could have been trimmed i feel like all in all like this this has a pretty good pacing to it because it's all him like it's all his point of view and everything yeah. goes pretty quickly and you kind of know everything that's going on but and i think that's well served in like an action kind of novel like this yeah it's, it's a thrill it's a that is a um staple of the thriller genre is that the pace has to be really fast and in fact i would say this is actually kind of a moderate pace for a thriller novel and i mean it goes because it's a thriller but you know you there are thrillers where you really feel like you can't take a breath throughout the entire novel um and there's a little bit of that here but it's it's yeah it does clip along pretty fast have have you read many thrillers i mean I, i wouldn't say so i don't think so yeah, it'll be interesting to see if we cover another cover another one because th- when you start to notice it, it is, stands out as kind of a hallmark of the genre is just how the how the pacing is. I like the idea of a really really well paced book with like it's different with a film and a, and a book because with a film when there's there's no no time to breathe sometimes it can it can really hinder but it feel like I feel like with books you get a lot of time to breathe normally so to have the opposite of that in like a thriller novel. Just yep. like it gives you that that full on experience where it's like you can't put the book down. Exactly. They're, they're designed to be read in like a day or two. Like that's how a lot of thrillers are. They're supposed to be really addicting and just like feel like you can't put it down. Anyway, back to this novel. He is going up to the port to the party and we find out a little bit of backstory about uh, Gener- uh, his daughter, Stephanie Gennaro. See if I'm remembering this correctly. She married a man, took his last name, Gennaro, and then they ended up getting divorced like right away. And th- apparently this guy was kind of a, you know, I don't know, sleazeball, shitty guy. And sounds like Joe kind of knew it, but he couldn't stop her from doing what she was going to do. And uh, so I guess she's kept that name is, is the implication here. Yeah, she seems to be like, it, it seems like he he realizes that like he has to keep his de- distance to keep a good relationship with his daughter. And there's a lot of this that goes on where he just talks about his backstory with like his wife and the things that went on and the, the, the arguments that the daughter had to overhear. And I don't know if I don't know if we got into it yet, but the, they talk about how his wife soon after they divorced passed away. So he's the only one that's left for the daughter. Yeah, I think I think it has been mentioned. Yeah. So he arrives at the party and it's like a disco party is going on <laughs> and uh, which is kind of funny 70s thing. Um, and he comes in and people are like smoking marijuana, which he doesn't really seem to care about too much. For an ex-cop, he's kind of like pretty progressive feeling about the marijuana, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, um, it's California in the 70s, too. So he's probably just right. like, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, but then he goes up to meet with his daughter, who is with three other characters, Ellis Rivers and a Martin Fisher. And he immediately sniffs, like, you know, figures out that somebody's doing cocaine. Um, Ellis, I believe, is who he thinks it is. Uh, maybe more, more like maybe they were all doing it, and he's not okay with that. Like you know what I mean? As, as okay as he was with the marijuana, he immediately has like a kind of a reaction to the to the cocaine, and and he doesn't like bust him for it or anything. But he immediately starts kind of judging everybody, and and it's I don't know. It's just interesting um, to see a 1979 novel where there's this clear distinction between like a hard drug and quote unquote soft drug of marijuana or whatever. This is this also happened in, the, in in the film, and it's this is where I started to realize that like oh wow like the movie Die Hard is like almost blow for blow based off of this novel. It's amazing to see how much like I mean that's something I've just really learned from doing this podcast, and I've always suspected, but it's really backed my up my feelings. Like I we can talk about like I think the reason the movie is so good 
and I'm sure we'll get way more into this in the movie episode, but I think one of the reasons the first one is so good is because it's based off of this rich source material, right? I, I mean, I totally agree. And I, I and until we did this, I really didn't like, I was like, oh yeah, for the most part, a filmmaker will, will put their own spin on it. But there's been a couple that we've covered now where I've, where it's like, the most of the like i said with miyazaki and, and how's moving castle like miyazaki's like like a, a god in my eyes and yet he's still it's it's almost the same exact story there's almost yeah. there's like a few differences that he put his own spin on but in this one it's like there's almost no difference and i feel like he just saw what was in the book and was like i can do this visually and people will enjoy it and then just totally capitalized on it and and it feels like some of the stories forgot like the the novel is forgotten because people are always surprised to find out that it was based on a book. Yeah. I think the real work and the real magic comes from character. They, they changed the character in a lot of ways and the change ended up being a really special one, I think. And we can talk about that more in the movie episode. And I also want to make sure we talk about the diehard franchise when we get there, but so stay tuned for that. But I don't want to get, I don't want to get too off in the weeds here now when we're talking book. So Ellis who I think is the same exact name of the character in the movie, who is also this kind of smarmy guy, um, tells her like to show him the watch, which is a line directly from the movie. Um, but and and she, he suspects that they're like maybe sleeping together, um, and there is maybe also some like romantic implications going on in the movie as well. So it's interesting to see that being basically the same. I pictured him as the same person <laughs> whenever this guy. Yeah. It's it's basically the same. It says guy. all the same things, yeah. And so we he's really high up in the in the in the company, but he's not the head. The head of the company is a man named Rivers, who is a Texan, and he so he is the version of Nagatomi or whatever who the the guy who was in charge of the company, um, in the movie. I forget his name, but we'll get there in the movie episode. He's the version of that, except for he's this like Texan that. Joe immediately has, he's like impressed by, but also doesn't trust him because he can kind of tell he's this huckster. He, oh, I also thought it was really interesting here. Joe brings up the stewardess that he is going to like call and he has this moment where he like, like chuckles over how he like, you know, is going to call her up and they're going to meet up with all the guys and they have this kind of like moment, which I thought was really kind of weird to be doing in front of your daughter. Yeah. And like bragging about how and he even says something like, oh, don't worry, she's not she's um she's a little bit older than you or something to his daughter, which is a gross thing to say. Yep. Real gross. Yeah. So there's there's some of that, too, which kind of makes me like Joe less than I like John McClane. You know what I mean? Like he's a li- he's less likable. It's just like, what was he like? What was the it doesn't really even fit the character. Like, would that character really be like braggadocious to these like sleazeball guys? I mean, it also underlined something else i found that a little bit unbelievable at this character like the character feels very much to me like this i mean a lot of characters are wish fulfillment type characters for the people reading it and the people and the person writing it and that can be fun right like a kind of a you know idealized version of a person that is really good at everything and all this stuff right but it, it can also be problematic when it doesn't you don't believe it and one of the things for me is that this guy every woman he interacts with flirts with him did you notice this? There's like a blonde down in the lobby he talks to who's like, yeah, come back down here later and we'll see what happens. Like every woman he talks to is attracted to him. And so that felt a little, like unreasonable to me because we know he's retirement age. Yeah, a little wish for someone definitely going on. Maybe maybe a, more than a little, but. Yeah, and some of the stuff he gets into later, like he must, I mean, I guess he could be in just great shape, but um, he runs around like a man who's not who's not retirement age. I'd be interested to know how old uh, Roderick was when he wrote this. Well, we could do the math. 1936 is when he was born, and this came out in 79. So was that 43? So he was actually probably a little younger than this character. So maybe that was the problem. Maybe he was thinking more as a slightly younger guy. I don't know. He also makes really, like, another thing that just made me really hate him. And and I, I don't hate the character. I definitely like him, but, like, He's super flawed. And here's one of the flaws. He looks at his daughter and he thinks she's been five pounds too heavy for years now. And now it looks like she's 10 pounds too heavy. Which is <laughs> just, just a horrible thing to be thinking yeah. about your daughter. Nobody really it's like, thinks you that. you son either. of a bitch. It's so stupid. <laughs> she's been five pounds too heavy for years now. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway. All right. Okay. So he, he, he calls down to the, to the security guard once he gets back to it, like this like room to clean up. And uh, he finds out that the Jaguar left. 
he's thinking about how he doesn't like rivers and he has this memory about an old man wise man who used to tell him to that if he wants to wake up at night to wash his feet at the end of a long day you know i'll wake you right up which is a you know interesting version of what we get in the movie where it's you know make balls with your feet or whatever and roll them in the carpet or whatever yeah. <laughs> whatever it was in the movie <laughs> fists with your feet or something um, that's what it is fists with your feet yeah. this german character that he like talk he keeps like referencing this german character that he met on a plane at one point and he talks about how he would have lied to the german man if he had asked what he did during the war because he kind of feels guilty about killing all those nazis even though they were nazis and yeah i just think this i would love to like i can't wait to see more of this german character popping up throughout you think we'll get more i think he he keeps like i think later on he mentions like oh the german guy wouldn't have thought this or he would have thought that in this situation yeah he has a lot of respect for him so this is where you know to me this is where the novel really picks up because he's talking to uh, he leaves he calls the stewardess kathy to leave her a message and while he's leaving the message the phone cuts off and come to find out the phone line is dead and he also sees this truck like make a sharp turn down on the street as he's looking out the window and he starts piecing things together and he immediately knows something is wrong and that like something is afoot uh and he draws his gun before he hears the first scream which okay you know what i mean like i i I almost don't buy it but i'll just give it to him like yeah Yeah. he draws his gun before he even hears the first scream to know that like something's actually happening there was like a large truck that like went into the underground like extremely fast but yeah i still don't buy that he would have put the pieces together and be like we're under attack yeah like literally because like okay he can be like something's up but to draw your gun before you know what i mean like at that point like he so you know he'd just be silly like well you're standing there with a gun what are you what are you doing like the phone's dead somebody you know took a hard turn on the road and now what are you doing (laughs) yep anyway but he's right of course so yeah we hear we hear the screams and he ends up having to leave the room just like in the movie without his shoes on in order to get get out before he gets caught by these uh people coming in and he sees uh, these four guys who have AK-47s, and they all have educated accents. And he recognizes, importantly, recognizes one of the men. And we don't know why, but he just says, like, he's, he, one of them he knows. And then he slips into the stairwell, goes upstairs barefoot. And it's one of my favorite details from the movie, him being barefoot. It's, like, a really humanizes him. And... It's I love it, and it's really good in the novel, too, because it gives me an opportunity for every time he goes somewhere, Thorpe describes how the ground feels on his feet, which I yeah. think is a really cool detail, and it just works. It's definitely cool. It's smart, and and it's it's really, really iconic for the movie, like the fact that he's running oh, around yeah. barefoot with the, with the undershirt. Yeah, at, like sure. It's like extremely iconic, and it's it kind of adds to the fact that he's just like running around on broken glass and all this other stuff barefoot. He's just such a badass. Yeah. All right. Well, so, so now that we've reached the really exciting part of the novel, I think we should stop and tell you about Audible. Yeah, let's do it. So Audible is a service where you can listen to audiobooks. They have a huge collection, and we actually have an affiliate link where you can go onto their website, audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And you get 30 free days for that service and one free credit for any novel in their collection. Yeah, I mean, and I have used the service for years now. Absolutely love it. Uh, I'm going to give a recommendation if you like thrillers. Michael Crichton, I'm sure you've heard of him. He writes amazing thrillers. Um, You know, Jurassic Park is famous for it. But another one that I've read is Sphere, also made into a movie. These are all things we could actually potentially cover one day. I expect we will do Jurassic Park at some point. Um, but yeah, you can, you can go listen to Michael Crichton. If you like these kind of novels, these thrillers, high pack, you know, high energy, a lot of excitement. Um, and yeah, tons of his novels are on there for sure. And that's uh, audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And you can get that for free and three, uh, free 30 days. All right, right back into it. Chapter five. Uh, we are on the, uh, sorry, Joe is on the 34th floor and the party's on the 32nd. And I thought it was really interesting. We get like a, I felt like I had a clearer idea. Now there's some differences, but like of how the building is laid out and how he's really restricted to the f- certain floors. Like he's, he can't go below 32, at least at this point in the novel. So he's, he's trapped in 33 to 40 essentially. And he's running around in these, se- in these seven um, floors and he starts making a list of like, you know, 
his surroundings and what's out there. He thinks about the danger all the people are in. Uh, we get some backstory about the man he saw who, well, not quite yet, but he knows he knows that the man he recognized is a killer, and he makes the observation that that guy's going to kill somebody soon um, to, like, make a, you know, make a statement. And I, I really like uh, the, one of the major differences for this novel is that we, this is what I talk about all the time. I talk about close POV. It's close third person, and it's tied to Joe. So we never get anything that he can't directly hear or see, right? I mean, like, he overhears things. But we don't ever get, like, a cut to the room with all the hostages and, like, see what's going on with Stephanie. We don't right. ever get a cut down to the basement and see, like, the ter- you know the terrorists rolling in. We get none of that. So it changes the novel, you know, changes the novel from the movie in a pretty interesting way too, because it keeps it, like you said, very tightly focused on Joe. Yeah, and because in the in the movie we cut to, in the movie his name is Hans Gruber, and Alan Rickman in that role is again so iconic and such such an yeah. amazing performance, and he's yeah. such an amazing actor. Yeah. And we're about to find out this guy is Anton Gruber, and he's he's a little different. Right, there, there's like essentially the same character, different names, but um, I guess I guess there are differences in their character as well. But we cut to we cut to the the villain, and we cut to all kinds of stuff in the movie, and that's why it makes it first like it makes such an interesting difference in the novel being so closely third, like you say, because you get to feel the like something unexpected can be around at any turn. Whereas in the movie, we cut away and we know, okay, so the bad guys are in motion, so they're probably going to hit it, like they're going to meet up here soon. And in this, it's like any at any moment, a bad guy can come around the corner. Well, yeah, and you, you get, um, you get kind, I mean, it's not really, but you get kind of perfect knowledge in the movie where you know what's going on with the terrorists, you know what's going on with um, his wife, and you know what's going on with John. In the book, you get Joe only, what he can overhear, and then what he, you get a lot of him like thinking about what they're doing. And he's coming up with these assumptions. And it's always interesting because he's not always correct. Sometimes he is, and sometimes he's off. And so seeing how, what he's predicting them for them to do versus what actually happens, I think is really interesting. Yeah. And it's like a dynamic and, you don't get in the movie as much. And I don't want to take away from, from the film because I will say that like cutting away to the villains in, it, it serves to build tension in the film, but it's just, it's just different oh, in sure. the novel. In the novel, they do a great job of, of building tension in a different way that I think wouldn't, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't work out as well in the film if it was just random. Everything would just seem random. It's just a difference of the forms. I agree. I think the movie had to be made the way, like, the way it was. I think it was very smart to make it that way at the very least. Um, but yeah, this works for the novel. One of the major differences I wanted to say with uh, Anton, who is often called Tony Gruber, um, is that he's re- no, he has this famous way he's known for killing people, which is he chokes them with a tie, and then he shoots them in the lapel, which he calls pinning the black boutonniere on, which is a, an interesting detail. It makes him sound like a bit more of a, like, I don't know, like psychopathic killer than I think Hans. Hans is a little bit more mastermind. Like, he certainly wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty, but Tony, to me, is being described as this, like, ma- almost like a mafia guy who's just, like, probably killed 100 people or something. You know what I mean? Like, he's this out-of-control psycho killer, almost. Very smart. Yeah, they talk about the performance of what he does and how he's a guy that he'll kill you and then he'll straighten up your tie so you look nice and tidy even though he just killed you. And like, right. there's something about like the way that he, perf- there's a performance to the, like, and that adds to him being more, you know, psychopathic or sociopathic. All right. So he, uh, we get another memory here from Joe and he's remembering a conference he went to that was all about like these kind of situations. And he's like super qualified for this sort of thing, which is, a, that's another major difference too. I should say he's like a specialist who advises and has like taught people about how to handle these kind of situations. That's different than the movie, because in the movie, John McClane is just a cop. He's like a hotshot. Yeah, he's just... He's just a hotshot cop, but he's not a specially trained hostage situation kind of person like like Joe is in, in this in this novel. But yeah, he remembers the speech this other guy gave, and they, they all talk about how, you know, the public is, like, making it really hard to be a police officer and wanting to have record of, like, what when they're allowed to use force and how it's, like, strangling the police force. And this is a very, like pro-police, you know, which, like, I mean, the guy's a cop, so I get it. This is how you would actually think, but it's, it, it, is, it is interesting. That it's very, like, 
you know, how dare the public want to know what kind of force we can use and when. Like, it's going to it's gonna let them know what they can expect. And it's, you know, the other side of that being like, there should be rules that govern you. You're not a tyrant who can just kill people on a whim or break their bones just because you feel like it. Definitely an unsettling speech. The whole It was a long speech, too. Like, a, a it fairly was. long speech where he talked in detail about, like, uh, they were gonna they were gonna make a show of the extremists like if if any of them came to their neighborhood they would murder them and take them away without the without the white sheet on them and make a make a kind of a an example of them yeah and it's interesting because it's not joe who said all of this but we get the we get the implication that he kind of agreed with it at the very least right well he he was like the last to stand up clapping so i don't really know what to make of that yeah that's true like maybe he had a little bit of hesitation about it yeah yeah. And okay, so let's get to uh, here. We're on to chapter six now because um, he hears an elevator at the end of chapter five. Um, and uh, chapter six, he, uh, I think, he, I think, I guess he just heard the elevator because he, to know that it was still working. And he, that's them going around to different floors. Like he can hear the terrorists going around. He goes up some different floors. This is when he really makes the note of the layouts, which we actually, in, in the ebook I had, there was actually like a, like a, handwritten copy of the like note he wrote which was kind of an interesting addition um he's thinking about his options and he thinks about how he wants to keep his uh his pistol like a secret as long as possible because that'll be like a kind of an ace in the hole for him if they don't know he has it he's yeah this is a lot of him just like figuring out what they could know what they're up to like how he can like use what they know and don't know against them really interesting like i the, the like, it's a lot of the thought process of what's going on with the strategies that he's using and i like that like I, it's more than you get in the movie yeah it was a little bit more of a detective than an action for this part like a lot of things going through there, a lot of ex- explanation and clues and that kind of thing they're all coming together to form a plan so he w- makes his way up to the 40th floor i think is where it was and he overhears them speaking in german and he comes up and this is when he witnesses anton gruber kill rivers um, because rivers doesn't want to give him an information some information that he needs and this is just like hans uh killing the head of the corporation in the movie right mm-hmm. very similar scene i think i think uh john even witnesses that right like he's there somewhere and he kind of sees it happen so same kind of thing and then he has this immediate like adrenaline thing where he runs and is he's all pumped up because he just witnessed somebody get murdered which he says he's never seen before which is interesting it's an interesting distinction because, like, yeah, I guess seeing someone get shot in cold blood is different than shooting down a plane that you know has someone in it, but there's, like, a, a distance there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he says this is the first time he's seen someone killed in cold blood. This is when he decides he's... This is Chapter 7 now. He's going to go and he's going to flash lights on... In, in, I think he's just flashing the room lights on this, yeah. like, floor. Like fluorescent and he's trying lights. to... Yeah, he's trying to send out this SOS code. You know, three short, three long, three short, right? Am I getting that right? I think so. Or maybe it's the other way around. But it's three, three, three. <laughs> I don't know. I'm having to think about it now. I thought you were, like, you were right until you said it. And then and then I'm like thinking about it now. I'm pretty sure it's maybe it, one, two, three, one, two. Yeah, I think it's three short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three long, three short. Three long, yep. three short, yeah. I'm more confident now. <laughs> um, so the elevator arrives um, with one guy on it. And I guess he's spotted, like he's noticed that these lights are flickering and he's come to check it out. And Leland, as the guy arrives, turns the lights out and he's kind of like going around in the dark and he throws a flower pot against the, like across the room to draw fire, which the guy, like, he seems like he's kind of scared or something because he just shoots it like wildly, um, blasts out the windows, which I was like, okay, here we go. Glass in the feet. But that doesn't <laughs> happen here, at least. Yeah. Um, he shoots out the windows and he gets some outside air coming in. And then the guy starts springing from desk to desk, which... I can't remember because some of these gunfight scenes blend together a little bit for me, but I can't remember if this is the time that I'm thinking of where the guy does this in the movie, where he's like jumping from desk to desk and like at one point John McClane's on the ground underneath him. Underneath him, yeah. Um, I think that happens later. I don't know if it's the exact same time, but it's like a similar situation with the desk thing. Although John McClane's not like underneath him, or or I guess Lee right, 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 underneath right. him, so it's a little different. Yeah, it's a little different. Um, anyway, uh, he. He kind of gets around the guy the, in the dark, and he has this moment where he's like, I don't know if I want to kill this kid. Like, he, he recognizes this guy's, like, 25, and he thinks of him as a kid. He eventually snaps the, his neck in, like, a really gruesome way. And I was thinking, and now I'm pretty sure in the movie, they fall down the stairs. And he almost kills him accidentally in the movie, 
Whereas this is a very deliberate thing, right? I think he still ends up with a broken neck in the movie, but but it, yeah. like you said, it's different. It's not. I don't think it's quite intentional. Yeah, this is like he has him in like I think he has him like basically in a headlock, and then he thinks about his training and how to do this maneuver that's going to kill somebody, and then he uses it on the guy. So yeah. It's a very direct like I'm going to kill him. Yeah, and yeah, he like. His head flops around like a chicken's and like the kid starts peeing himself and like all this stuff. Like it's described really gruesomely. And he, I th- and he feels kind of bad about it. Like you can tell that he doesn't just, you know, like shrug it off. Like, oh, I'm a badass. I don't care. Like he feels guilty about it. But he, ha- he also had this like mental calculus about how he can't keep like he can't not kill him essentially. Like he this, you know, like he can't keep him as a prisoner and he's going to kill him if he lets him go. So he has no choice. Right. So he gets uh this, he gets the kid's gun, which is this like he calls it an antique, like Thompson submachine gun. Um, gets some ammo, um, and some candy bars, which we assume are his like feed that keeps him going throughout the movie. <laughs> and uh, he has this like feeling where he feels like I'm going to like I'm already a dead man. This is something he says he used to feel in the war, where he kind of he kind of assumes he's already dead, and it sounds like that's kind of freeing for him. Like he can like maybe let go of fear. So he straps the body of this terrorist to a chair and he puts him in the elevator and he writes something on him. And I was like, oh, my God, it's the same thing. It's a little different, but it's really damn similar to the scene. And he sends it down. And in what I always thought was one of the coolest scenes in the movie, he does the same thing here. He climbs on top of the elevator. So if you like the scene where John McClane is writing the elevator and smartly overhearing you know, I mean, these terrorists give away information with his little like distraction that he sets up. Um, that's from the novel, you know, so give credit to Roderick Thorpe for thinking that up. Yep. Ho, ho, ho. Um, yeah, it doesn't say ho, ho, ho. I wish it did. Instead, it just says it says now we have a machine gun, which is also another interesting difference. This is more of the head game because he's trying to convince him them that there are more than one of him. Mm-hmm. Try, you know what I mean? He's just playing games with them, trying to keep them so they are confused. Makes sense. Um, to so me. he says, "Now we have a machine gun." Yeah, it, it seems like more. It seems like more of a tactical plan than than John McCain just being yeah. like, "I have a machine gun now, ho ho ho!" Like like yeah. taunting. And but I mean, yeah. still, it's a little bit of both though, because he even mentions like he wants them to be afraid of him, which I think is very much what's going on with John McClane in the movie. Like he yeah. wants he wants them to think of him as like a wild man. We also get uh, a thing where he says, "Tell Carl his brother is dead." Anton says, and that's right out of the movie. I think the name is identical and everything. Yeah, Carl. Um, and so the guy that he kills first in the book is also the brother of Carl, who, I mean, we don't know who Carl is, except for his brother gets killed here. And a lot of these characters' names are the same. Like uh, uh, yeah, Frank Franco was mentioned, which I know is a, uh, one of the characters named Franco in the movie. And it's funny here because they also say Hans. So I think there's a different guy named Hans in the in the group, which is a little confusing. But not he's not the main guy. That's Tony. Yeah. Leland rides the elevator back up to the 40th floor. Um, he gets covered in this like grease and he notices and he like mentions how dirty he is, which is a cool like thing from the movie, too. Is like he, he, he as this novel goes on, he gets really, really filthy and he gets covered in blood. And this is the start of that. Like he gets really dirty here. He, he has this radio now and he turns it on and he and, and Gruber's on there and he's threatening to kill hostages and Leland's like, oh, I can't, I can't respond because he's fishing. But then he, then he responds anyway, <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, Leland says like, hey, is, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, can I send the, can I send the girl down? She really wants to give herself, you know, give herself over or whatever. And you know, uh, Gruber ag- agrees. And we find out that Leland means this is like a distraction. Like he's trying to get them to be like concerned with the elevator while he goes off and does something else. But problem is, the uh, Hans figures this out. And, you know, sees through it and he realizes that he's rode the elevator and like all this stuff. And so this is kind of interesting mind game gets played. And uh, he these these other guys arrive and he has to exchange fire with them, runs around like flees and he gets onto the roof, up onto the roof. And he's able to like finally get to an area where he can hide. Interesting that the way that Gruber actually figures him out because he like basically just like uses reverse psychology thinking where he's like okay so he if i was in his situation he would probably do this so that this would happen and basically he realizes that since he sent down the body and said now we have a machine gun he realizes like why would he have done that other than to come down and listen in so gruber like figures out like that's what he had done and yeah he also like when when he overhears him 
Gruber says maybe it's a party goer with a with a with a woman, and he then like when Leland calls and says, "Can I send the woman down?" That's like he realizes that he heard him say that, and that's the reason he's suggesting that. Yep. Leland's now hiding, and he's in like this elevator tower, and he can't. Um, basically, the people can't come up after them because there's this like. Um, ladder that he could just kill them very easily if they were to come up so he's in kind of a standoff with them and he's in this he's in this like elevator tower thing and so he flips on the radio and uh he has some more conversations with gruber and gruber like mentions he's like how did you know and like gruber tells him like this is how i knew so there's some interesting back and forth between them much like the movie right and then leland decides he's gonna taunt carl you know, he says, uh, let, I want to tell Carl what it was like to break his brother's neck. <laughs> and he, he says that assuming that Carl can hear and then like there's like silence on the other end. <laughs> so, I, you know, that's it's funny. Like, it's like, yeah, he really doesn't give a fuck right now. He's just like stirring, the, you know, stirring up the hornet's nest. Right. Trying to make people make mistakes and break ranks and, and, and trying to call it like so chaos. Right. And make people afraid of him and angry at him, I guess. Mm hmm. Um, and then he also like has another thing where he starts thinking about like another r- romantic thing he had that failed. So every now and then we're interspiced with these like a little bit of stuff, like backstory where he like reminisces about something, right? It's always like jarringly interrupted by something else that's going on <laughs> in the story, which seems to propel the. It keeps it propelling forward because you know like okay right. he's going into flashback and then it's like boom we're right back out of it and he has to like jump into the the elevator shaft and run away and that kind of thing. Right. So this is it. This is him. He has to jump into which I think is the air conditioner shaft. Which I, I don't know. I have a very clear you know memory of this happening in the movie too in a very similar way. This is almost. I think this is almost exactly from the from. I think it's the same thing. Yeah, it's very similar. Although the the where he ends up is not the same. Mm-hmm. So he he uh, he has to use his gun as this like support, and then he's like lowering himself down to the strap. Um, also, I think and like I don't know that the strap. I don't remember. Does this, the strap doesn't break in the same way though? Too here, right? Or he like starts so. falling or anything. Well, he, he doesn't fall and then catch himself like he does in the movie. Right. He's kind of fumbling around in the dark, trying to keep quiet. He ends up wriggling through the through a vent, and he thinks he's on like a lower floor. But he comes out and come to find out he's just like somewhere else on the roof. He didn't actually make it off of the roof. And he comes out and he's covered in and he thinks about how he's really covered in dirt and oil. So he's like he's so dark that like he, he's actually really hard to see up on the roof, especially like against a backdrop of night. Um, so that's kind of cool. Just I'm just imagining him like, I don't know. There's a, a scene from, I think, another Bruce Willis movie. Well, Arnie and Predator. Yeah. Covered in mud. Oh, yeah. Like that. Yeah. Uh, well, there's and there's there's another Bruce Willis like army movie. I can't remember what it is, but he comes out of like the swamp and he's got like head to toe like camo paint on or something, and he just looks really really dark. Uh, I was thinking of the same kind of thing here, because like I said, picturing old Bruce Willis. <laughs> but anyway, he comes out and basically he comes out behind the guy who's like watching the ele- like watching where he went, and he just walks up on the guy. And I thought it was funny because he kind of walks up on him all nonchalant, and the guy turns around and has this moment of like, "What the hell am I even looking at right now?" And he uh, he he asks like he he like points the gun at him. And he says like what what are you guys doing? And then like the guy's like eyes go wide and he starts to answer. And then like Joe thinks now nah, he's gonna lie. <laughs> he's just gonna <laughs> lie and say something. So I don't have time for that bullshit. And he just shoots him. <laughs> he shoots him in the lapel like as a callback to the way that um, Tony shoots people and kills him. So this is his second kill. You know his second terrorist down. And I thought it was funny that he asks him a question, but then like literally kills him before he can open his mouth to even try to answer anything. <laughs> Finds a, Mar- a Mars bar in this guy's pocket, picks up his body and walks it over to the edge of the building, pushes it off and says, Geronimo, motherfucker, which I, I you know, that's a very John McClane thing to do. So I like that kind of consistency here. Mm-hmm. Geronimo, motherfucker. That's right. I think he pushes him down the elevator shaft when he says that in the movie, right? Or something. I I don't know. Does he say Geronimo motherfucker in the movie? I don't think he does. I think he does at one point. Because he definitely says yippee kaye yippee kaye motherfucker for sure. Yeah, um, I think he says both. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe we'll he have to does. See in our viewing. Yeah, we'll find out when we watch it. Regardless, he throws this guy body off the off the roof, which is also kind of different than the movie. He hears the sound of it smashing into the ground. And then he like throws up because it's so gross or whatever. So this is another moment of like it's it's like as hardened and like badass as he is, he's not unaffected by the things he's doing. He's not unaffected by the violence. 
he throws the body off because he's trying to send a message. And this is similar to the movie. Um, now, in the movie, he, he drops the body on... Uh, on uh, The cop's car. Shit, what's the name of that character? The cop's car. I forget the name of the character um, or the actor. He drops... Yeah, he drops the body onto his car to be like... And then he says, welcome to the party, pal. Um, <laughs> famously. Um, one of my favorite lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a difference because this, this version throws the body off and then is like, I got to go throw up because of how gross that was. Uh, maybe more realistic, I guess you could say. More realistic, yeah, because I mean, it goes into full-on action, macho mode in the in the movie where he's just like, like doesn't care about anything, got to get the job done, and needs to get backup, and uh, he kind of tries to signal. I forget what what's going on in the movie, but he trying to get he get, tries to get his attention, but it doesn't work, and he's like he's about to leave. The cops about to leave, so he's like, forget it, and just throws the body out the window on on the car. Yeah, so it's frustration a little bit too, yeah. of the, like how dense the cops being. Yeah, so different here. He's just hoping to God somebody notices this, right? Because he's just trying to get a signal out. Because mm-hmm. um, the because oh, fa- importantly that the the radio is not powerful enough to like reach, or he or he's told or he you know th- it's not really powerful enough to reach out of the building. Mm-hmm. So he that's why he can't really radio for people. Yeah, because he was like in the elevator shaft and he tried to call out on a different channel on the radio. He tried to call out at like a like a, a SOS kind of deal, like a help message and uh yeah that's when gruber overheard and he was like yeah you're not going to be able to do that you're in a in a metal box not the signal's not going to get out that's right so he goes back to the 40th floor and he finds a woman on the top floor and she's like doing something and he comes in and points the gun at her and he he's like oh my god it's a woman or a girl i guess is what he calls her and um i guess he like I can't remember if he even says anything, but she lunges for her gun and he has to shoot her um, because because of that. And then he this is something that really affects him um, because, you know, he's he's killed a woman here. He's yeah, he calls her girls, mentions that she's maybe even younger than than the other the other ones that um, he's killed. And this ends up being the third the third of the uh, terrorists he kills. Um, and he finds the plastic explosives nearby and the detonating gear for those. I think I feel like this is this. I mean, we're this is almost the end of of the portion that we read, and we can feel the the movie starting to lean towards kind of how he's going to set up his plan and how he's going to figure out how to how to get out of the situation and save some people. Yeah, I mean, he's still really desperate here, but we've seen him like he's killed three of them now. Um, he does overhear Carl um, talking, and he Carl wants to kill uh, Leland himself, which is just like the movie. And he mentions that there's nine of them left. So this is the first confirmation uh, Leland has of how many remaining terrorists there are. So there's nine more. And he starts to uh, plan his next moves here. And yeah. as he's doing that, he notices that the elevators are shut down. And when he turns on the radio, Anton is threatening to bring hostages like to him and kill them in front of him. And he just completely ignores that because it sounds like it's all just bullshit. I should also mention there are children at this party and um his grandchildren right? his grandchildren yeah, yeah that's his grandchildren. his grandchildren yeah so stephanie's children are there um i should have we probably should have mentioned that earlier <laughs> um but i mean it's like we he never actually interacts with them so that's probably why that's why we didn't talk about it he never actually talks to them or anything but they are there yeah and his mom their mom was like in in another room potentially doing coke while they were like in some disco party which is pretty wild the C four that he that he find he he kind of stashes at this point also. Yeah, that's true, and, and this is I mean, and the fact that he kills a woman here is another very big difference from the movie, and I think it this novel is like messier, right? Like the character isn't quite as likable, and the violence isn't described isn't shown as being as like cheer worthy as it necessarily is in the movie. Right. I definitely agree with that. There's a little bit more of like glorification going on in the movie. And here it's mm-hmm. like, this is like, he, I mean, he's been in war, but this is like, he's back in war kind of mode. That's how he's thinking about stuff. And he doesn't like it really. Yeah. He keeps thinking about having to kill her and how it, like, it bothers him clearly. But he also feels like he can't do anything. Like, this is what he's got to do. And yeah, so the end of the novel, the end of, not the end of the novel, the end of the first half is that he sees these signals like off in the hills somewhere this is light flashing and he realizes that it's signaling him and it's signaling like four it's like four flashes 
that he remembers is like somebody signaling 10-4 as in like message received. So he realizes that that means someone got his message. And so he tells uh, Tony Gruber on the on the radio, he says, oh, the police are coming. And uh, Gruber says, oh, that's OK. We planned for them. We're here. We're ready to be here for weeks. And which is kind of like an ominous thing to say, because we know that he's his situation is very precarious. And then, yeah, he has the thought of a Merry Christmas because 12 o'clock rolls by and now New Year's or sorry, Christmas Eve becomes Christmas. And I thought we both thought this was a good place to stop our uh, to stop our read of the first half. Definitely. Yeah. And it's cool because each chapter is kind of listed by the time of day. So we're kind of we kind of know what time of day it is, what like how long each section is taken. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. So overall thoughts about this first half of this novel, you know, what are you what are you looking forward to in the second half that maybe you expect could be different from the movie? I'm looking forward to like seeing that. like what how it all comes together. Obviously, I want to I want to know if it's if, if it's going to continue to be the same, um, because with How's Moving Castle, our last, our last project, it was fairly similar up to the halfway point and then pretty That's different right. from the second half on dramatically different in the second half so i wonder if it'll continue to be as similar for this one here um i really like i mean i think we hit on on most of the stuff just i like how fast it is i'm enjoying reading it i'm really interested to see psychologically where he goes because every time he kills somebody it's weighing on him and i'm curious to see if it's going to build into something or if it's going to instead be more that he grows numb to it um, so I, I guess the psychology, like I'm really caught up now in the psychology of Joe Leland and, and how the events are affecting him. Um, and that's something we don't get a lot of in the movie because we, we get an idea that John McClane's just a badass and like he just, you know, shrugs this all off, doesn't bother him. Um, but you know, that's, that's not true for Joe Leland. I would say as badass as he is, he's affected by every time he kills somebody. Now, do you think the end is going to end up being the same. Do you think we're going to have the same happy ending? Is he going to save his daughter? Is he going to save his grandchildren? And they're all going to kind of like leave happily ever after kind of at the end there. I mean, I definitely think that he's going to save them. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be happy. Maybe like a bunch of people will die or something. Um, but he, I feel like the story is going to be pretty similar. Yeah, I kind of think it will be too, but there's also, like, I wouldn't be shocked if it took a different, because the tone is slightly different, right? Mm-hmm. And so I also wouldn't be surprised if there maybe is a bit more tragedy in this in this version. Yeah. I'll be interested to see where that goes. Me too. And, and if everything if everything ends up playing out the same way. All right, I think, I mean, I think I've said everything I can about the first half here. We We did mention, we did want to talk about our special episode we have coming up, right? Yeah, definitely. So it's the end of the year and it's our 20th episode. So we're going to do kind of a retrospective and, and we're going to touch on some of the feedback that we've gotten that we, we weren't able to cover. Some of that we got, like people would send in something like right after we recorded for the episode. And so we, we wouldn't be able to talk about it. And we feel kind of bad about that. So we have some, we have some stuff that we want to be able to touch on here at the end of the year. So if you ever sent something into us and we didn't talk about it, you know, make sure you check out this episode. We might get to it. Um, we also were hoping to get some more questions from you guys, our listeners, anything you might want to ask us, even if it's just general stuff about ourselves or about the podcast or about future projects and where we maybe are seeing this going. Um, we'd love to get some questions from listeners that we can use to, uh, you know, give some content to this, to this episode. So this special episode, we should say like, we're not going to be covering any particular novel or anything which is going to make it very different. It's just going to be us talking about what it's been like for these first 20 episodes, maybe asking questions of each other and going over uh, feedback. Right. Yeah. And I think like with the, I think we've done four or five projects here now. Um, I think with the, with hindsight, we should, we're probably going to revisit them and just kind of very briefly mention like how we feel about the properties as a whole. Now having a little bit of distance from them. Yeah, I know I'm going to want to ask you like for highlights and favorite moments and stuff like that. So you can look forward to that episode if that sounds like something interesting to you. We'll see how it goes. We've never done anything like that before. So we, we thought, you know, end of the year special was kind of a good time to do it. And it worked out with our schedule. Um, but then we'll be right back to our regular programming in which we'll be covering something new. So, yeah. So send in any questions or or any sort of comments, anything you've got. We'd love to hear from you. You can send them to 
inktofilm at gmail.com is the best place to send your questions, comments, concerns. Yeah, that'd be the, that'd be great. Send them there. Um, the other way you can do it is to reach out to us on social media. Um, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and we are at Ink to Film on all three of those. Yeah, and we also uh, a great way to support our podcast here is to rate and review on iTunes. Um, we have we've gotten a decent amount of reviews there, but it really helps us to get the word out there about our podcast. Absolutely. Um, yeah, any uh, a review like this one from uh, iTunes, five stars from Beast Mode Kate. Uh, the title is Killing It with Stephen King's It. So clearly she's referring to our first project, which was Stephen King's It. Uh, she says, unique way to experience the book before seeing the movie without a huge time commitment. Really enjoying what I have heard so far and can't wait to see what they think about the movie. So thanks for that. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate that. So lastly, we just wanted to say thank you to Audible for our affiliate link. If you wanted to get those 30 free days and one free credit, you just go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And we also wanted to thank Chris Hayes Music for the use of our intro and outro music. Oh, and I just remembered I wanted to uh, let everybody know I'm going to be at PodCon, which is a podcasting convention in Seattle. Um, I'm, I'm going to be heading up there. It's on December 9th and 10th. I'm going to just be on my own checking it out. Uh, there's some podcasts there that I'm a big fan of. But if you listen to this podcast... Reach out to me on uh, social media or through our, our Gmail because I would love to meet up because I'm not going to know anybody there. <laughs> Come say hi to me at least. Yeah, that would be awesome. I wish I could go, but maybe next year. Yeah, Seattle's a little farther for you than it is for me. <laughs> it's a short drive for me, a cross-country flight for you. Yep. So understandable. Um, yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping it'll be a lot of fun. I, I've been to a lot of writing conventions over the years, um, but never a podcasting convention. This will be my first, so. Should be fun. Yeah, cool. But uh, yeah, I, th I think that's it. So uh, we'll see you next week for the second half of Nothing Lasts Forever. And until then, I'm Luke. And I'm James. See you guys later. Happy holidays. <laughs>